truth. Lord, we love you and we praise your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much. Hey, it's a treat to get to have some, some horns up here leading worship as well. Um, hey, my name's Hillary Little, and I'm so thankful that we are all here together getting to worship together. Um, it is a time where we are getting to celebrate that Christ has, in fact, come to earth. Um, and we get to also wait on the day that he will return again. So it's a, a fun time in the church to be able to celebrate Christ. He is Emmanuel. Um, so if this is your first time with us, welcome. There are some connect cards at the end of each row. Fill one of those out. It's just an easy way for us to get to know a little bit about you. And we would love for you to get to know us. You can stop at the guest table on your way out. Um, and there's some things about Legacy Church you can pick up, some free books and things like that. But the best way to get to know us as a church is to really become part of the family. And the way to do that is um, check out one of the calm groups. They meet throughout the week um, in various living rooms throughout the city. And that's one of the best ways to get to know um, what Legacy is really about is by joining a calm, visiting some calm. So we would love for you to do that. I also wanted to let you all know, um, especially partners of Legacy, that we have started um, between now and the new year a prayer time on Sunday mornings. And this is just a time for us to be together and pray for our church and the city of Knoxville, especially as we go into the new year and are wanting to have big emphasis on evangelism. And so we would love for you to come and pray at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings. And we're going to meet in the classrooms um, that are one of these classrooms down the hall. And if you have to serve somewhere, um, come for a little bit and pray for a little bit. And then you can step out and go to wherever you need to serve. So definitely don't feel like you're going to be interrupting something to leave. But that's going to be at 9 o'clock in these classrooms on Sunday mornings. Um, just a time to pray together, be encouraged, and, um, and do that. So... All right, this is the time of our service where Luke is going to come and he's going to talk to us about some things going on in Knoxville and how we can be praying for our city and reach our city. Thanks. Thanks, Hillary. Hey, and good morning. Yeah, it, I thought that was cool to have some horns up here. Just so you guys know, if you were never in bands, that the French horn and the oboe, that's what smart people play, okay? That's, that's not, when I was in band, they looked at my report card and they said, we think you should play this instrument. I wanted to play the drums and the trumpet and they said, no, I don't think that's a good fit for you, Luke. You're going to play this. And they basically gave me an instrument that morons play, right? And only had like two or three valves. There's no way to go wrong. That's what all the smart people, those are very difficult instruments to master. They really are. So you just need to know that whenever you hear them, so be sure to thank them later on for preparing and, and being ready for that. That was exciting. I was glad to hear that. That was super cool. Um, yeah, it, it just as far as what God is doing at Legacy, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the prayer time that she had mentioned. And just to say, this, this time of year where everything starts to naturally cycle down a gear and slow down, and I know we have more parties <clears throat> and I know that there are more activities with our kids. If you've got kiddos that are in plays and in recitals and things like that. Um, but naturally, this is kind of a time where school or work starts to slow down. It is a fantastic time to spend more time in prayer. And not just praying for each other, which I encourage you to do. I mean, we, 
For instance, we have a lot of people on the road. We're about a half to a third the size that we normally are. It's a great time to pray for people as they travel. <clears throat> and listen, when people are traveling, a lot of times, and I've talked to a few people even this morning I've spoken with, who are going to see family somewhere. That's not always easy, is it? To go and spend a few days with family. It's like good for a few minutes, and then sometimes it can just get tough. So just pray as people go and visit family, and you have these moments where you just don't see them very often, and now you do, and sometimes stuff just kind of floats to the top. Pray for gospel fluency. Pray for just a settled soul. Pray, pray that there is relationships built, even in family. So pray for just kind of the, the basic average things that we should be lifting each other up for. But also, what I want to encourage you to do, and this is what we did this morning in our prayer time this morning, is pray for the impossible. Spend time praying for things that only God can do. Only God can do, right? And don't just learn how to pray for things that only God can do, but start to uh, render and enculture a prayer life that does not just pray for impossible things, but actually expects them to happen, right? I mean, when it comes to praying for marriages to be fixed, you gotta know, a book is not gonna do that. A sermon's not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that. I can't fix your marriage, right? But the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, can fix marriages. I've seen it. I'm in one, right? I mean, if it wasn't for the Spirit of God coming into my marriage, we wouldn't have made it through year two. And had we done that, we wouldn't have made it through year eight. Those were some boogers of a year, right? Without the Holy Spirit, without the gospel moving and trafficking back and forth between me and my bride, I wouldn't be up here today. Definitely not as a married man, that's for sure. So pray for impossible things like that or new salvations, new life in our midst. Whenever you see someone baptized, whenever you see a new Christian, that's not something just a sermon did. That's not something that they, they logically just came to, to grips with and just became a Christian. That is something that God did through his spirit. He changed their heart from a, a heart of stone to a heart of flesh that can feel. Pray for beautiful things in the city, for doors to open even in the city. We've had some really cool things happen with our church in this city, and I'll tell you the coolest things, that my favorite stories, my very favorite stories that I get to tell about what Legacy has done were moments where I just, I didn't do anything. As I always say, I kind of Forrest Gump my way through it. God is the one that opened up the doors. God is the one that kind of maneuvered things, and it just was put up on a tee for us. So pray for impossible things, and then pray with expectancy. And that's a little bit of what our passage is going to deal with today. People that prayed for impossible things and prayed for impossible things with expectancy. So as you're looking at your new year, and hopefully you're doing that, Advent's always a good time of reflection. It's a good time of looking towards the new year, what we're heading towards. I want you to consider, what is it that, that my family is praying for? And how much of it is impossible unless God do it? How much of it is impossible unless God and his goodness and his sweetness just decides and comes down out of his good nature and just does something for us? Because listen, some of you are in some pretty difficult marriage situations. You just are. It's just, it, it could be tough. Some of you, you are in workplaces you don't want to be working in. Some of you, you have horrendous situations and you see no way out. You're just looking for a lifeline. I'm just saying pray for the impossible and then pray with expectancy that God will do that. And just to echo a little bit of what Hillary was saying, we do at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning, um, there's a few of us that are praying for this church, praying for churches in the city. We're praying for some very key things, that the gospel is preached, right? That the gospel is the center of what comes from the pulpit, that the gospel comes across clear and compelling. We pray for new life. We pray for fixed marriages. We pray for new friends. Pray for new community. We're praying for quite a bit. So... 
that's a great opportunity for you to come. And listen, if you struggle with prayer, if you struggle with prayer in a room with others, maybe you struggle with prayer on your own. Maybe you're driving around or you're just spending time with yourself and you don't know really what it sounds like to pray. I mean, that's how I learned how to pray. Within maybe being a, a week or two old in my walk with God, I was invited into a prayer meeting, a little bit like what I was just describing, a little bit what we have up here on Sunday mornings. That is where I learned how to pray. That is where I learned, oh, you can say that to the Lord? You can say that to God? Okay. I didn't know that. There are some things in Christianity that you catch, and I, I caught how to pray from, from, from some very godly people. So if you're struggling in knowing just how to pray, that would be a great, just a great thing for you to step into, a great thing for you to come and join us in. So... With that out of the way, and with that just kind of before you, I'd love for you to open up your Bible if you brought it to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and we're going to jump right in. You know, we're in this series of Advent, which, as I said, is just a Latin word that is where we get coming, and we're straddling two Advents. One is where God comes through a manger and visits us, and another is where he will come again to collect his family, to tie everything up, to end everything, right? And right now we're, we're in the in-between between two advents. And so we get to see a cool passage today where there are some older, more seasoned believers in Simeon and in Anna. And listen, they're, they're older. The Bible says so. In fact, some of your Bibles, it doesn't just say that they are advanced in years. It says that they are stricken in years, which I love that. If you have a King James, it likely says stricken, and that's what it feels like. (laughs) When I get up in the morning, I don't feel advanced in anything. I do feel struck, though, with the years sometimes. But here's the thing. They're not just barely hanging on in this passage. They're not just barely hanging on. In fact, they look really young. They sound young. I love this. I need more of it. I I think we all do. When I am around people who have labored for decades in the faith, just you know by talking to them. You can see the lines in their face. They've had some dings and they've had some dents, right? But as they have labored for decades and you catch this spry joy about them, this energy, like they're just, they haven't even started enjoying God yet. Like they're still excited about the things of the Lord. Man, I have hope. I just have hope when I see that. I've been looking at these people for a while, Simeon and Anna, and I'm encouraged by how they look in this passage. I'm also a little bit indicted, right? They have this devotion and this sense of purpose that seems to be so dialed in. They don't look panicked. They don't look bitter. They don't look grumpy. It's obvious to me in this passage that they've realized this earth is not their home. Right? And the, the plans and the purpose that they've built is not for this place. So I think this passage will be helpful for you if you've struggled finding purpose in your life. If you've struggled finding purpose, meaning significance in this world. Or maybe just if your life isn't turning out to be what you thought it was going to be. We all have dreams in high school, college even, of what things are going to look like. How's that look? Does it look anything like you thought it was going to look? Right? Let's look at Luke chapter 2, verse 22. This is going to be the word of the Lord for us today. God is kind to us. And I think, and when I say you are going to see Christ more clearly and compellingly in this passage, I really believe it. I really believe some of you are going to see Jesus like you've never seen him before because of this passage. And so we're going to slow walk our way through it. Luke 2, 22. This is where Jesus is a baby. He's being presented at the temple. 
It says, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, being Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay. I'd love to just speak to that just that much before we lose it, before it gets lost in the shuffle, right? Because there's a lot going on there. I, and I know what it sounds like. It's, it sounds like blah, 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 Old Testament stuff, blah, blah, blah. That's what it sounds like, which is why we don't really read it and spend time on it. We kind of mow right through it and get on. But this is where the gospel shows its texture, okay? The good news of God has incredible texture to it. And this is one of those passages where we get to see it because a sacrifice is about to happen, right? Mary. Mary and Joseph are bringing a sacrifice to a temple because she's impure, not because she's done anything. She's not impure because she sinned in some distinct way, but because she gave birth, because she bled in giving birth, right? Bleeding from birth made one impure in that culture. It made them defiled in that culture. And listen, there's a lot of theories as to why they saw things that way. I started looking through them all. I, I stopped counting at 15 different theories on why that this culture looked at bleeding in childbirth as something that would defile or make someone impure. It would, it, would, it would bore you to death. Nobody would ever come back again, and it's not that interesting to begin with. So we're not going to go into all the different theories of why that is the case. All I want you to know is that by law in Leviticus, at day 40, once a woman had stopped bleeding from giving birth, she would bring baby to the temple, present the baby to the priest, and then offer a sacrifice to make sure that they were clean, right? This is how it says it in Leviticus 12, verse two. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. Sounds weird. It just all sounds weird, doesn't it? This is the stuff that you don't read unless your Bible reading plan told you to read Leviticus 12 that day, right? But this is a place where God is beginning to establish truths and principles that are going to march forward through time all the way to the person of Jesus. Again, there's texture in the gospel. I mean, one thing we've learned so far, just in the little bit that we've looked at, is God will not cohabitate with impurity. He won't dwell with the defiled. We know this. We know this from what we've read so far. Only the clean can dwell with God. Well, what is unclean? Well, there would be a number of things. If you touch the dead animal, unclean. Touch the dead body, you're unclean. If you menstruate, you're unclean. If you have leprosy, you're unclean. If you have an open wound or a boil of some kind, you're unclean. There are different things that would make you unclean. One thing, having a baby. Having a baby would make you impure, make you unclean, which actually kind of gives us the second thing that we see in these passages so far, and that is that God always provides a way for the unclean to be clean again. He always, pro he always provides a way for those who are defiled to dwell with God again. This is where we get the sacrificial system, right? 
I mean, if you've ever read your Bible, maybe you're still growing to learn your Bible a little bit, and you get to the place where they talk an awful lot about sacrificing animals. And you're like, what is that about, and where did that come from, and exactly why? Because it can be confusing. And it's definitely not something we see anymore, at least not in this way, right? So what's it all about? The punchline to the sacrificial system is a flawless animal, flawless animal, would be killed to cover a flawed person, okay? Flawless animal would be killed to cover a flawed person because when blood, they they always saw life inside of the blood. So when blood was let out of an animal, that life of the innocent animal would cover the guilty person, okay? Of course, as we've seen in some of our sermons in the past, you can't can't stay flawless for long, can you? (laughs) What is the shot clock on somebody staying flawless Imagine you're in the temple. You just brought, I don't know, a couple turtle doves or something like that or an ox. And, and they went through the sacrificial process and the priest does whatever he does. He says, all right, we're done. Have a great week. How long until you're sinning again? I don't even get to the door probably. I'm probably already judging other people whose turtle doves don't look like my turtle doves, right? I'm already judging. I'm already, I'm already sinning in my heart. It doesn't take any time at all. We could do it in seconds. In fact, we could do it and not even see it. Right? What does that mean? It means more animals, more sacrifices, more blood, right? You know, in this case, in our little passage today, they brought a pair of birds, literally turtle doves, which are basically pigeons. All right, if you want to look it up, you can. But you were supposed to bring either a lamb, a flawless lamb, or these birds. But if you were poor and you didn't have a lot of money, bringing birds was totally fine, which is what they were able to do because they were poor. So when we really get to the, the bottom of this passage, we see that they're bringing pigeons in. The blood, this is nothing weird here. They're bringing pigeons in. The blood leaves the pigeon, and it covers her impurity from birth. Everyone caught up so far? That's what's going on. <laughs> It's also important to know that by this point in human history, the sacrificial system has been hacked. It's been manipulated and and, and ruined. It's been abused by priests. If there's been a loophole there, they found it. There's a shortcut, they found that too. It's been something that was used as a measuring stick now. Now, what the sacrificial system was supposed to draw our attention to, it's no longer working. Now it's a box to be checked as we move through our busy lives. I mean, what you are supposed to be left with is the feeling and the sense that there has to be something better than this. There's just got to be something. And he's begging for an upgrade, this whole sacrificial system thing, right? I mean, just imagine it. Imagine you're there. Imagine you go up with Mary and Joseph, and you're in the temple. Imagine the sights and the sounds and the smells. You see smoke everywhere because of the burning animals. You see people stirring all over. You see tables where they're transferring currency from one to another because there's no way you're always going to bring an animal with you, right? I mean, who wants to walk with a couple pigeons if you could just buy them there? Now, later, Jesus would flip those jokers over, but in the meantime, this is what you would see. What, What about the sounds? People, vendors yelling, animals being animals, some priest off yelling, doing whatever priest yelled at that time. You see rivers of blood, Puddles of blood, carcasses. You'd see a lot. All of this so that we could be close to God temporarily, for a little while, imperfectly. Man, there's got to be something better. And then the third thing that we see so far in the 
little passages that we've read is that all firstborn males are set apart to belong to God. Isn't that odd? It says it in Luke. It says it again in Leviticus. Why? Why, why the first male? Why the first boy to be born in a family being set apart as holy to God? It's actually a hearkening back. It's a call back to Exodus. Right? And again, if you're not a student of your Bible, don't sweat it. This is all it is. If you were to go all the way back to Exodus 12 in your Bible, you come into this really unique situation where God tells his people, listen, something huge is going to happen. It was actually the last plague on Egypt. And what they were instructed to do was to kill a blameless, flawless lamb. They'd eat that thing, and then they'd take the blood, and they'd paint it over the doorstep, right? Just the threshold to the door. And in doing so, that night, as an angel of God would pass through the midst of them, would pass over the houses with blood on the door. Pass over, which is where we get the word Passover. Okay? Every door that did not have the blood of the lamb on it would lose its firstborn male. Right? That's, that's what's happening here. This is the pivot point. This day of Passover is supposed to bring a remembrance to people of where God showed himself to be strong and a promise keeper. He keeps his promises, and he's incredibly strong. He's very faithful. All of this, all of this law and ritual and ceremony is God calling his people to remember who he is, how strong he is, how much of a promise keeper he is. But he's not just calling everybody to look back. He's actually calling everyone to look forward to. Like I said, there's got to be something better than this system. And there would be. Before long, Jesus would come. Jesus is a better lamb with absolutely no flaw. And his blood would be let out. Not to paint the door of a home, but to paint your heart. To cover your sins. To preserve your life so the angel of death would pass over you. That's the only reason it's in your Bible. is to prepare your heart for Jesus to show you Jesus. This is incredible to me. Back when God was speaking to Moses, he was already setting the table for the gospel. He's already setting the stage. Nobody knew it at the time, but he's already setting the stage. I mean, just just consider this. Jesus would be the last sacrifice, would stop all rivers of blood. No more bulls, no more goats, no more birds. The ultimate lamb of God has been slain and his blood covers the sins of the world, not for just a moment or two, not for a week or two, not for a year, but for eternity. There is some symmetry in this. Here he is. In our passage today, Jesus is likely 40 days old. I mean, I'm reading the same thing you're reading. He's likely 40 days old and he's being brought to a temple that he's about to replace. You see, God always dwells among us. He, he, he dwelt in a tabernacle, and then when the temple came, he dwelt in the temple. Now the temple is not going to be needed anymore because he's going to dwell in a man, in Jesus. So he's about to replace a temple. And he's going to be brought in this place where all these sacrifices are happening, but he's about to be the last sacrifice. Right? He's going to be orbiting and being brought and presented to all these priests. He's going to replace them too. He's going to be the last priest. Man, can you see the texture in this? How Jesus is fulfilling the sacrificial system and stopping it in its tracks? That is cool. Your Bible is cool in how it does that, how it shows us. And in fact, it gets even better because in about 30-ish years from this point, Jesus is going to show up. And what's he going to do? He's going to pursue the defiled and the unclean and those whose society says we shouldn't touch them. He will find the prostitutes, the tax collectors, 
the lepers, the ones who are bleeding, the ones who are blind, the ones whose society is cast off deep into the margins, and he will pursue the defiled, even though he is pure. And people would gasp in horror because you weren't supposed to do that. But is that really a big stretch for God? I mean, just the act of God coming to us is the pure coming to the impure. What's touching a leper at that point? I mean, it's perfect for Jesus. It's perfect for Jesus to do that. This is also why we see some impure and defiled people buckle in worship, because they know something everyone else doesn't know, and that's that a thousand bulls and a thousand goats couldn't cast enough blood that would cover their problem. Not in a million years. So this temple scene, we're not even in the passage yet. This temple scene shows you and shows me that God is coming close to defiled people, and he will shed his own blood to make us pure, and he will bring us close. That's what you can get out of this. Now, I'm giving you the nickel tour through the sacrificial system. I mean, I basically took like two semesters of seminary in some places and just put it in like three minutes and did not do a fantastic job. But it's just to show you that this is a visually heavy scene. It's a visually heavy scene. It's thick with significance. It is thick with symbolism. It's just thick. The scene is full of ritual. And it's far greater than ritual, isn't it? I mean, then again, all our best rituals are bigger than themselves. Find me a good ritual, and that's because there's something beautiful behind it, right? Think about communion. Communion's a ritual, isn't it? I mean, we'll take communion a little bit later, and what you'll do is you'll walk back there, you get a little piece of bread, you'll dip it in the juice. Hopefully you don't drop it in the juice because then it just floats around forever, right? <laughs> no one touches those. But you, pay, you, t- you eat it off in a corner or with your family or something like that. It's a ritual. We're going to do it every week. But it's more than a ritual, is it not? It's more than a ritual. How, Luke? Well, communion is what Passover used to be. Jesus' last Passover meal was when Passover became communion for us. That's why we don't celebrate Passover anymore. It's more than just bread and juice. Baptism, it's a ritual. You've seen it. Someone's in a tub of water, someone's in a river, someone's in a pool. We dunk them, we put them all the way under, they come up, everybody claps, we eat pie. It's a ritual. But it's more than ritual. Oh, it's far deeper than that. How about fasting? How about prayer? How about writing a check? It's ritualistic, and it's not. Serving as a volunteer, it's ritualistic, and it's not. A hundred other things we do. It's probably a different sermon. Let's go ahead and get into this passage. We don't have a lot longer. Luke, Luke 2.25 says this, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, mamas, how would you like it if some strange guy comes shuffling around the corner, snatches your baby from him and goes Lion King style, lifting the baby up and singing a song? What would you do, right? Same thing I would do. Leg sweep, choke hold, we'll call Officer Lisa in from the foyer, taser, 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 (laughs) and then we file a complaint, right? It's weird, it's odd. This is a bizarre moment, this is not normal. (laughs) This is not normal. But they treasured it. 
You'll see it later on, how they treasured this. They marveled at it, Luke is about to tell us. Let's go on, verse 29. Verse 29, this is the song, short as it is. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Okay. Here's the topic of that song. It's like a third of a stanza. It's not really that long of a song. It's just, it's the global scope of the gospel. It's how far it reaches, right? This is not just a good news that reaches Jews. It's good news that reaches and captures non-Jews. That's what Simeon is singing right now, right? This is beautiful. It's, it's basically uniting different people. The very same Holy Spirit that changed your heart and raised you from the dead spiritually is reaching a family in Nepal right now, or Anchorage, Alaska, or downtown Birmingham, or right across town. Same Holy Spirit, different people, different people, right? There's a global scope to our gospel. Next month, I'm real excited to look into this. We're going to look at the, at the cosmic reach of the gospel, right? And how God did not just come. Yes, we have a personal salvation, but but really what God did was much bigger than that. He came to renew all of creation, right? Which means that the same Holy Spirit that raised your life from the dead also is going to change culture. Culture, this intangible thing. It's also going to heal the, the cracked face of Mars, right? The very same Holy Spirit that changed your life is going to make the Smokies look like they should look like, as beautiful as they are. And they don't look like they should, they will someday. They will someday. The gospel promises us this. Salvation is more than your personal story. It's not less, but it is more. It has a wide scope, right? So Simeon is singing of this gospel uniting different people for God's glory. And here we are. We're all coming from different. We all took a, a 23andMe test. We're all coming from different places. Probably not very many Jewish people in this room. So we're actually a result of the exact thing that Simeon is singing about right now. And as much as this gospel unites us as different people, he's about to explain to mom and dad that it'll actually divide us at a heart level. I mean, hear me when I say this. There is not anything more divisive on the face of this planet than the gospel. Nothing. Nothing more divisive. Nothing will divide us. Nothing will divide people more than the good news of God for mankind through the person of Jesus. Let's see him say it. Luke 2, verse 34, as we keep going. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Okay, so Jesus, the hero of our salvation, shows that the interior of our souls will be laid bare and seen. Now, God can see every nook and cranny. This is fascinating to me. Everything that's hidden away in your life, everything. Why you love the things you love. Not just that you love things, but why you love them. These strong convictions that you have, where you got them, he knows. How you change them, he knows. The secrets that you have that nobody knows about. He knows why you have those secrets, where you got them, why you won't tell anyone else. He knows. He knows all of this. 
He has full access. Even if you don't pay much attention to your own self, we call that low self-awareness. Lots of people have it. They don't know why they do what they do. They don't even know why they like what they like. They just like. They just do. God knows. God knows. He knows why we do destructive things. He knows the toxic reasons behind us doing good things. He knows what motivates us to worship. He knows what motivates us to sin. He knows what's causing fear in us, what causes us anxiety. He knows why we are addicted to the things we just can't put down. He discerns and knows absolutely everything. We see this in Hebrews 4. The author of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active. And who is the, the word of God, by the way? Christ is the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. The gospel, the good news of God, is the word of God. And all of this is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Listen, this is petrifying to a lot of people. It's horrifying to a lot of people. Some of you, you've had that dream. It's just a typical dream. You've all had it. You wake up in high school again, and it's test time, and you didn't study for the test, and you don't have any clothes on, right? Or you're at work, and you don't have any clothes on. Usually, you'll have a dream, and you don't have any clothes on, and you feel this, oh, my gosh, everyone's got clothes on, and I don't have clothes on, and you feel vulnerable even in your dream. This is worse. This is harder. This is more petrifying and horrifying. Some of you, you have a hard time just sharing your life with others in a calm group or in a DNA group or just in a Bible study or even your spouse. You have a hard time laying your soul bare. That's why God knowing us to this level of intimacy can be so horrifying. King David, he agrees. He says this in Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. Right? And I can't either. I can't either. I just can't be more vulnerable than that. And not everybody loves it. Not everybody loves being known like this, right? This is why John says in his gospel in chapter 3, he says, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people have loved the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed, right? That was me. That was me all the way through college, right? Hey, Luke, you gonna come to church with us this week? Yeah, you bet. I'll be there. Don't wait up. I'll take a different car. <laughs> I'd never go. I'd never go. Why? Is it be, Luke, is it because you didn't believe in God? I mean, I believe there was a God. You know what I'm saying? I kind of had that, I don't know, maybe there's a creator out there. Did I believe that Jesus was the only way? No, nah, I wasn't really sure about that. But here's one thing I was sure of. This is one thing I was certain of, that if I did show up to whatever Bible study or church service or whatever was going on, hear a campus minister talk or a pastor talk, I was going to hear things taught that were going to make me feel exposed. Light was going to shine on my life. It's not comfortable. It's excruciating. And I would just want to do what my forefather and Adam did and just head for the bushes. Go hide myself. 
Just go hide myself. Take my shame and go hide from God because I'm so dirty and so ugly and it's just too difficult. Here is the truth. Whenever the gospel is placed before mankind, as Simeon says, it will mean the fall for many. It will mean a fall. Many love the darkness and they hate the light because they are overexposed. There's an exposure there. So many are going to hide, just like I did for so many years. Others, however, are going to hear the gospel with great joy. And being known that deeply enriches their relationship with God. I mean, for instance, my prayer life was liberated when I found out that God knew me this deeply. I mean, I could put all the fake language away, the these and the thous and oh dear lords. I could put all of it away. I could speak to him knowing that he knew my heart's cry before I could even formulate the sentence in my mind, before my brain, before my brain cells could fire in such a way to where I could form a sentence he already knew. And he knew what was behind what I was saying and what was behind that. And let me tell you, when you were speaking to a God that knows you on that level, you could put all the fakery away. You could put all the scrub language away. You could just speak openly. Are you mad? Go ahead and let him know. Think he's going to be shocked? Are you sad, depressed, anxious? Let him know. Let him know. And when you can speak to God on that level, with that guttural honesty and authenticity, it will change your prayer life forever. There is a joy in being known this deeply. There's a joy. And others, like Anna, like Simeon, they hear the gospel with joy. Now listen, they do see the severity of it, but they also see the kindness of it. We know this, right? So let's look. Let's go on. We're going to finish this passage in Luke 2.36. It says this. And there was a prophetess, Anna, right? That means that she was a prophet. That means that she prophesied, just to make that clear. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Okay. So there's a lot going on here. Very cool day at the temple. Apparently, at some point in Gideon's life or Simeon's life, the Holy Spirit shows up and says, hey, before you die, you're going to see God in the flesh. Like, that's going to happen for you. Now listen, I've seen stories and I've seen it on TV and read stories and stuff like that where he like dies the next day just to add drama. I'm not sure that happened, right? I think this is just a way of saying, hey, in your lifetime, this is going to happen. I don't, I don't think he went home worried. I don't think he went home and went to, went to, you know, put a will together online or anything like that. But what I love about this, pa- this, this passage as a whole is they waited patiently. With Simeon, we see a devoted man full of purpose, Right? Anna, also a woman who had great purpose. I mean, her backstory, it's, it's, it's horrible. It, it's horrible. It's heartbreaking, and it's impressive all at the same time. I mean, she lost her husband seven years from her honeymoon. Man, she missed all the best years. She missed all the best years. You don't even figure it out until year 10, I feel like, sometimes. I mean, you do the math. Back then... It would be around 16, give or take a year, that you'd get married, right? That means that she didn't even see 23 or 24 as a married woman. That means that she was likely a widow for 60-plus years, 
praying and fasting and worshiping day and night. For what? What is she fasting for? What is she waiting for? This moment. This moment. 60 years in the making this moment. Man, does she get bitter? No, she doubles down. Fasting, worship, prayer. See, they persevered with great purpose. Purpose is hard to nail down, isn't it? Isn't it just hard to nail down? What is my place in this world? Am I doing it? Am I missing it? Is it out there? Is it too late for me? How do I find it? How will I know? Some of you in this room, you're highly discontent because it feels like your life is detached from this mystical thing that we call in our culture purpose, right? And so you kind of mope through the day, and it stinks. You go through all the motions with this sinking feeling that there's something that you have not stepped into, something waiting that you've missed, like a train that's flown by and can't get on it anymore. Bitter, grumbling maybe that people are holding you back from your purpose, a person is holding you back from your purpose, a situation has blocked you from your purpose, maybe even God himself is just too cruel to allow your plans to come through the way you want them to come through. It's almost like life itself is on hold. Maybe even life is wasted. What I see in this passage is that Simeon and Anna, right, among others in your Bible, they show us that the gospel rearranges this thing we call purpose. I even say redeems it. Fixes it, changes it for sure, this thing we call purpose. And it doesn't matter who you are. You could be a baker or candlestick maker. You could be rich or poor, single, you could be married. The gospel carries purpose to you. It doesn't matter where you're at. This is how Paul says it to the church of Philippi. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, he says, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content content, satisfied. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. This is what's crazy about this. Paul had plans. He had plans in his life. We know that much. He had trajectory. He was, he had a meteoric rise. He was an up and comer, right? We know that from the scripture. He he was going to shake the industry. He was the thought leader, right? Went to the best schools, had the best reputation. He had plans. And then God brought a purpose. Peter had plans, was going to take over the family business with his brother, right? I mean, dad can't fish forever, you know what I'm saying? So they're going to scratch up a living, buy a little lake house somewhere, pass it on to the kids. He had a plan. And then God gave him a purpose. Anna had a plan. She's going to be married and have kids and build a house. God brings her a purpose. I had plans. I had plans. Lots of them. And God gently pushed them aside and gave me a purpose. A purpose. The gospel gives us purpose, and it supersedes all the plans we could have on this earth, in this place. No longer are we enslaved to chase after the things that the world says is meaningful, significant, powerful, and great. We're not chained to that anymore. You're not enslaved to that anymore. You're free. No longer are you, are you doomed to be bitter and grumble about who's in your way and why you can't have what you want. You have a new purpose. Here's the purpose, by the way, just so I could state it very clearly. It's to enjoy God. That sounds overly simple, doesn't it? To enjoy God over all things. To enjoy and be satisfied and content in God over all things at all moments is the purpose 
of our life. I know it sounds oversimple. Listen, when you are satisfied in the Lord, it brings him the most glory. And God is most glorified in you when you are most content in him. Okay, let me say it a different way. Whenever you are most satisfied and content and enjoy God the most, that is when he finds most of his glory reflected in your life. And he is reflected more in his glory with your life when you enjoy him the most. In a world full of goods, he is the greatest good. That's where he is most glorified. You know, your life, in fact, is something that you just feel free to give away. When you enjoy God more than anything, you're free to give your life away. You're free. I remember the night I just gave my life away. Gave it away. All my plans. I just gave them away. And I didn't feel this oppression. I didn't feel sad. I felt free. I felt free because I knew no matter what I stepped into, no matter where I went, no matter what I did, I had purpose. I had purpose. Not because of what I was doing, not because of where I lived, but because of what the gospel has done for me. Listen, there's, there is solid space for you and me to repent and to change in a passage like this. Because like I said, a lot of us are discontent with our life because our plans aren't working out like we wanted. Right? We have plans. It's just not working. It's not working. That's why John says, don't love the world or all the stuff in it. Paul tells us in Romans, when it comes to this world, be transformed. Don't be conformed and look like everybody else. I mean, let me, let me ask you, have you really given your life away? Have you really given your life away? Or are you on the edge of it? You know the cost. You're on the edge of it. Have you even given your plans away? The lofty ones, the low ones. Are you convinced that God is better than everything that this world offers? Now listen, this is the cool thing about being a Christian. There's a lot here on this earth to enjoy. You can be content in this world. We should find joy in this world. I mean, there's a sliver of God's glory just about everywhere if you have eyes to see it. I mean, that's why the Bible says, whatever you're doing, if you're eating, if you're drinking, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And isn't that true? Listen, it's the holidays. Eat some good food. You know what I'm saying? And whenever you're eating the good food, think, man, this is really good. Look how good God is to me. Eat it to his glory. When you've got a great glass of wine, if you're free to do so, if you have a great glass of wine, drink that wine to the glory of God. Be excited about how good he is to us through that. I mean, James says every good and perfect gift comes from God, right? There's a lot to be enjoyed here. There's a lot. There's a lot to be enjoyed and thankful for. But this world is never going to, it's not going to make you content like Jesus. This world is never going to bring you the completion you're really looking for. Even when it's on its best behavior, this world will fail you. It's going to fail you. If you're discontent because this world is not delivering you a purpose to your liking, if you're bitter because your childhood plans are not unpacking like you wanted them to, it's because you've banked all of your plans and purposes in the wrong place. There's nothing for you here. There's nothing for you here. We need to turn from saying that God is not enough Saying he's not enough. For saying that there's just better stuff out there. I mean, you're good, God, but it's just better out there. We need to turn from saying that his purpose for me is bad, so I have to create my own. You know, two weeks ago, we looked at the story of Mary, a teenager who saw the gospel 
As we said, it was like if it was a gauge on her dashboard. She saw the gospel through the thick cloud of anxiety. The whole world is telling her, this is a really stupid time to be singing. You should be worrying right now. And she found the gospel. A week after that, last week, we saw Zechariah, who was able to behold the gospel with joy enough to sing about it while he was looking through the thick cloud of regrets and past failures. And here we have this beautiful, beautiful example of two people stricken with years who are holding fast to the gospel through incredible decades-long devotion. Decades of devotion. If I could get in a time machine and go back, I would say, how are you, how would you, like, tell me, Simeon, before you waddle off to your house, tell me, how were you able, for such a long time in one direction, how were you able to be so obedient? How did you do it? Right? Here's one thing I think he would say to me. There's two things. One is that I think that they just trusted that God was faithful to keep his promise. Hey, listen, not everybody is, right? We can all agree on that. Not everybody keeps their promise. (laughs) Not everybody is good at keeping promises. But consider how God has never broken one. He makes promises and then he keeps them. And then he makes more promises and he keeps those too. He made promises to Adam, made promises to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, to Moses, to Joshua, to various prophets, to various kings. All he does is make promises and deliver on them. That's all he does. God has never broken a promise. He's a promise maker and a promise keeper. And Anna and Simeon knew this because they knew the promise of God, either because they knew their Old Testament or the Holy Spirit just showed up in Simeon's case and just told him. So they trusted that he was going to keep his promise. Here's the thing. I'm sure they had bad days full of doubt and sadness. I know they did. I mean, in 60 years, come on. You know Anna had a bad month or two or 20 You know she had bad days. You know Simeon thought, wait, did I really hear God? Wait a minute. Was that, okay, did I get sleep that night before? My watch told me I needed more sleep, and I didn't get the sleep I needed to, and I woke up, and was that really God, or was I just delirious a little bit? You know know that those things happen. How do I know that those things happen? Because they happen to me, and they happen to you. We wonder, we doubt. Is God really going to keep his promise? Is he really good like he says he is? Is he really glorious like he claims to be? Is he really gracious Is he really who he says he is? Is he a promise keeper? Here is the good news for you today. God is still a keeper of promises. But how do you know that you won't lose heart? You don't. You will lose heart. This is where the good news gets better. You see, Jesus was the only person to walk this globe and not lose heart. You and I, we're always going to do it. We're always going to wander away from the truth and and bang into the guardrails and then come back and then bang into another guardrail and come back. That's just who we are. But when you wander into this place where you don't believe that God is a truth teller, when you don't think that he's good, gracious, glorious, and when you don't think those things, what you need to know is that he's not going to break his promise to you. If you break your promises to him, he will not break his promise to you. When you chase the wind, trying to build your plans and your strategies here on this earth, he's not going to break his promise to you. He's not going to do it. His promise is to cover all of your sins by his own blood. He is the better lamb who ends all sacrifices. He is the better firstborn son who is totally devoted to his father. He is the purity of God come close to the impure. So you're free to fail. You're free to fail. The blood of this lamb covers all of your sins, not just the ones in your rearview mirror, but the ones you're going to do in three weeks or in three minutes. That's how strong it is. 
You're free to have bad days. Listen, you're free to have bad months and years. And you're free to persevere with decades-long devotion. You're free to do that as well. You're free to abandon all the hopes of this imperfect place. You are free. You're free to give your life away. You're free to do that just as much. Jesus covers our failures and with the same power gives us an ability to overcome our doubts and our unbelief. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to put a bow on this. and We're going to take communion as a church, which, as I said earlier, is a ritual, but not really a ritual, right? I mean, I want you to imagine the moment that Passover changed into communion. Jesus picks up a cup and speaks to the people in the room. Listen, he's not just picking up a cup with wine in it. He's picking up the cup of God's wrath. That's symbolic, by the way, that cup he's holding in front of all of his disciples. It's emblematic of the cup of wrath that will be poured out to its entirety on him on the cross. Where he looks around to those who love him and he says, this old covenant is fulfilled. That means the sacrificial system and everything that came with it, it's fulfilled. He says, drink this, the blood of the new covenant. And in that moment, when Passover morphs into what we call communion, Jesus becomes the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. That's why John the Baptist, upon seeing him, said, Behold, the Lamb of God comes who will take away the sins of the world. We get to celebrate that in communion. So if you're a guest here and you're a Christian and you love Jesus, we encourage you to go back and take communion. Take it with your family. Take it with those around you. If you're not a Christian and you're just kind of looking and you're searching and you're learning, I would, just, I would ask that you would take this truth instead. Right? Take this truth instead because, listen, if you were far from God today, one thing I think you could agree with if you were honest with yourself is there's no way that you're sitting there today with all of your plans satisfied. You're not content. Come on. You're not content. You're not. Even if all your plans are coming true, you're still not content. That's how the Lord won me. He ruined me by giving me everything I wanted. At a young age, I achieved all my plans. I got it all. I won it. I won. And I sat there empty, horrified, scared, frightened, broken down. All your attempts to make yourself pure before God without Jesus, it's just as useless as if you had to drug a couple pigeons in here. It wouldn't have made any sense. There's only one sacrifice that brings mercy and grace to you. And it's the Lamb of God. It's the Lamb of God who, whose blood will cover your sin. And he's just asking you to give your life away. Give it away. Give it away. Let me pray for you, and then we'll have the team come up and lead us in worship. Father, we thank you for being so good and so sweet and so kind to us. We thank you for just the severity of what our sins do, and then the kindness of how you respond. And Lord, I'm, I'm a man praying in front of people, and I am a chief promise breaker. I break promises all the time. I'm full of, I'm full of junk, and you don't break your promises to me. Lord, the, the, the beauty of your gospel is that we're free to fail and still rush to you and pray with a real voice. And it's not based on our performance. Our performance is removed from the equation. Because you, our Passover lamb, your blood covers my heart. And death, therefore, will pass over 
me. And so, Lord, we just pray for those in this room who have yet to experience that. Lord, this, this covering effect of your blood and of your love, Lord, that today would be a day that you would quicken in them a new heart that would respond to you. And Father, we pray for this church. Lord, that you would cause us to be a people that would take even our plans, our best well-laid plans, and put them at the foot of your cross and trade them for a purpose. Lord, that whether I'm preaching today and selling cars tomorrow and then broke on the side of the road the week after that, I can find a content place, as difficult as it might be in this broken place, in this broken body, I can find a contentment knowing, knowing that you've brought me purpose, that I can glorify you at any moment just by enjoying you. And then, Lord, you would take all of the goods in our eyes, all the things that we chase after, that you would show us that they are not satisfying us. They are not making us content. They have been ripping us off. They promise that they will fulfill us, and they always let us down. They do break their promises. That is the tongue of an idol. It breaks its promise all the time. And, Lord, that we would come to you and fall at your feet and say, only you are good. Only you are glorious. Only you are gracious. Only you are great. Only you fill us. Only you are satisfying. Only you make us content. And Lord, that we would enjoy you with every fiber of our being, down to our inward parts, as you say. So Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.